Welcome to Misinformation, the podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Julia, you're back. I'm back. I had a a whirlwind couple of days. Yeah, you did. Um, I just spent the last two days in Georgia Mm. uh, packing up some materials for the museum. And I had a uh, five hour you know, five hours to kill at the Atlanta airport. Ugh. I know you've also had time to kill I at the Atlanta airport. I have spent airport. a full 24 hours in the the glorious Atlanta airport, and uh, I feel your pain. Well, since um, we had previously eaten all of the um, Atlanta delicacies, mm. like Waffle House and Chick-fil-A the day <gasps> before, um, I figured when we were at the airport, we should go to somewhere nice so that we sure. actually found the best restaurant in the Atlanta airport. It's called One Flew South. Okay. And it's in the International Terminal. Oh, damn. Yeah. See, I never went uh-huh. to the International Terminal. Yeah. I just wandered around the empty Chick-fil-A wishing <laughs> that it was open. You <laughs> 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 just like hoard some like Chick-fil-A Yeah, I just laid across the counter yeah. and moaned. Um, <laughs> yeah. So while I was there, I got like the best airport dinner I could have possibly wow. ever had. I got pork belly with a parsnip puree Ooh. and an arugula and like black bean salad Ooh, I love and arugula. some blackberry onion marmalade. <gasps> and then I treated mm. myself to dessert. Ooh. I ordered a yuzu tart. Yuzu? Is that with yeah. a, is that with a Y? Y U Z U. Okay, th- I'm assuming that's a Japanese fruit of it some is. kind. It is. It's an Asian citrus fruit. It's very similar to a lemon. Ooh. But um that just really got the old brain gears going yeah, about brain all these kind of like unusual um fruits and, you know, uh, and ingredients that sh- that show up on our menus nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um and it made me think of my favorite food network show and definitely my dad's favorite show, Chopped. So today I'm going to be talking about uncommon foods that I've learned about while watching Chopped. Nice. So for the people that are not familiar with this uh, just this masterpiece. Yeah, who live on an island somewhere or is a hipster that is like, I don't even I watch, don't watch TV. TV. I read um, James Joyce. <laughs> just over and over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the Food Network is is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so Chopped. In each episode of Chopped, there are four chefs. They compete in a three-round contest where they attempt to incorporate unusual combinations of ingredients into dishes that are later evaluated by a panel of three judges. So at the beginning of each round, there's an appetizer round, an entree round, and a dessert round. Mm -hmm. The chefs each get a basket containing four mystery ingredients, and they need to use all of them in some way. Um, So the ingredients... The, you know, the kicker here is that the ingredients really aren't ones that are commonly paired together. Yes. But my favorite part is when a chef has no idea what an ingredient is, <laughs> let alone how to prepare it. So I have learned about a lot of uncommon foods um, from watching Chopped. So That's great. I'm going to talk to you about some of them now. Um, so, you know, first up, we're going to start with some produce. Um, first, we have the cherimoya. 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 Mark Twain called the cherimoya the most delicious fruit known to man. Wow. Um, and he was a picky guy. Yeah. 
So um, the cherimoya, uh, the flesh of the fruit has a creamy texture, which gives the fruit its nickname, the custard apple. Ooh, mm. that sounds delicious already. So the ripened flesh is creamy white and the skin is green and gives slightly to pressure. And some characterize the fruit flavor as a blend of banana, pineapple, papaya, peach, and strawberry. That sounds delicious. It's like that like wallpaper in Willy Wonka. Oh like. my gosh, <laughs> the snozzberries. <laughs> they taste like snozzberries. So yeah, it's all these different flavors like blended into one. Um, so the fruit can be chilled, it can be eaten with a spoon, um, and it has... Uh, gotten itself another nickname from that called the ice cream fruit. Oh, and that's unpleasant. Um, so it's mostly in South America and other tropical regions. So, uh, however, the seeds are poisonous <laughs> if crushed open. So you have to be very careful when you eat a cherimoya. Wow, that is that. I'm sure that's a metaphor for something. Oh, sure, <laughs> it's gotta be. And also, um, the bark of the tree that grows the cherimoya. Uh, can induce paralysis if you inject somebody wow. with it. I don't know how we know that and how. Yeah, who <laughs> determined that? Some murderous South American yep. was like, what can I do <laughs> to kill my brother-in-law or whatever? Without a trace. But wow. uh, yes, yeah, so the cherimoya, it's um, it's green and it is looks like a spiky heart and it uh, apparently most delicious fruit known to man. So how big is this? Is this like? Um, like a softball. Like a, okay, so it's bigger than I was expecting. Yeah. See, I was thinking like a lychee where it's like uh, um, sort of like a big almond. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's about, I think it's about the size of a softball. Okay, yeah. nice. Um, so moving along to other uh, supposedly delicious fruits. <laughs> The durian. Oh, no. That's, it's very famous. Um, so the food writer Richard Sterling wrote that a durian's odor is best described as turpentine and onions garnished with a gym sock. Oh my and it can be smelled from yards away. Ew. So the fruit's flesh is sometimes eaten raw or is cooked and used to flavor a number of traditional Southeast Asian dishes and candies. What? And it's also used in traditional Asian medicine. Um, they use it as like an anti-fever treatment, but also an aphrodisiac. You know, what? nothing like turpentine and onions to get you in the mood. That's disgusting. So the durian, it's larger than a football. It has a very prickled armor-like skin. Um, the inside contains about 10 seeds that are about the size of dates, each wow. covered with a thick custardy off-white meat, which is the only edible part of the fruit. <laughs> I, it's grossing me out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Alfred Russell Wallace, who was a famed naturalist, he praised the durian in his 1869 book, The Malay Archipelago. He said, a rich custard, highly flavored with almonds, gives the best general idea of it. But there are occasional wafts of flavor that call to mind cream cheese, onion sauce, <sighs> sherry wine, and other incongruous dishes. Um, Malaysia produces hundreds of kinds of durian. Um, there are major commercial types. Um, and then there are like unusual village varieties that don't grow anywhere else in the world but um there's like a lot that goes along with it so durian is officially banned on the subways in singapore yeah understandable their signs are like no smoking no flammable goods no durian (laughs) like it's very like because it's offensive yeah and it's just every time you you see anybody like on the food network or like the travel Mm -hmm. channel and they are talking about durian they just like can't get over how awful smelling it is and so it's like most of uh, like taste mm-hmm. is actually tied to scent. Yeah. So it's like if if this thing smells so bad, how could it possibly taste 
anywhere close to good. Well, also, I don't want to know who the first person was who managed <laughs> to get through that smell and was like, like no, I'm going to put this in my mouth. Through, yeah. and, and then that lady, she's going to, she's yeah. going to want to put yep. her, let me put her thing in my thing. <laughs> oh, God. I I will say uh, from my past working in a vegetable stand Mm. in high school that the two worst smells, two worst vegetables to rot, the worst smells Mm. that come from those rotting vegetables are potatoes, they stink to high heaven, and onions. Mm. And so I have that like scent memory Mm -hmm. in my brain and I can't imagine getting past that to actually put something. uh, Also, the texture of custard. In my mouth to chew and swallow <laughs> voluntarily. And there are like people that go on these like durian tours of mm. Malaysia and Singapore and uh, like they want to get out there and they want to try all these different kinds. Fools. And, yeah. Um, so they don't grow in America, obviously. Oh, um, thank God. They There are producers over in Asia that will ship them over to here, but they're frozen in the process. Oh, and so like, sure. you know, oh, if you thaw frozen durian, you're not like getting the whole Ugh, experience. So they go people. and they travel. <laughs> Just to try these like <laughs> awful smelling, but supposedly delicious fruit. So it's like these people who love hot sauce that just want to eat hot sauce so much <laughs> that it like makes their eyes water profusely and they cough yeah, forever. You fine. know, like this you're not fine. enjoying no. this. This is just another hump for you to get over. You know, an yeah. experience or what have you. Yeah, I don't think I would ever want to try durian no. if given Seconded the chance. Seconded by LT. Um, a little more palatable fruit mm. is called the mangosteen. Ooh. It's not a Jewish mango. <laughs> <laughs> that that solid, solid. joke. <laughs> um, so the fruit of the magazine, it's sweet and tangy, juicy, a little bit fibrous, and it has fruit, fluid-filled vesicles. So those are like the flesh of a citrus fruit, like when mm. you eat an orange and you peel it, those little tiny things that hold like the juice in the... Yeah, like a little They're sacks. called a vesicle. Um, so the outside of the mangosteen, it is a purplish reddish colored rind, also known as an exocarp. Ooh. Um, and the edible inside layer of the mangosteen has the same shape and size as a tangerine, but is white. And the main compounds inside the mangosteen have caramel, grass, and butter notes Ooh. as part of the fragrance. So it's supposed to be like, you know, mm, mm, sounds very good. good. Um, Queen Victoria reportedly offered a knighthood to anyone who could bring her a specimen in edible condition, which no no one was able to do during her lifetime. Really? Not yeah. for Queen Vicky? Nothing? Yeah, they couldn't they couldn't get it back from, you know, Asia in time. I guess. Oh yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah, no freezing or anything like that. Yeah. Like she must have read somebody's report of it and was like, I must have one. Yeah. It was like, whoever, give it to me. <laughs> I imagine like Veruca Salt in uh... <laughs> <laughs> I want one now. I want it that now. part they leave that out of the history books about Victoria, but you know. <laughs> yeah. That's an assumption on our part. <laughs> um, another fun fruit, the rambutan. Mm. Um, so it this one is actually a little bit like a uh, lychee. So okay. um, it's a round oval single seeded berry. It's okay. about three to six centimeters long, three to four centimeters wide. It grows in a loose pendant cluster of 10 to 20 of these. So the skin is reddish and covered with fleshy pliable spines. Mm. Ooh, delicious. And the fruit flesh is translucent, whitish or very pale pink with a sweet mildly acidic flavor that's supposed to be reminiscent of grapes mm. um, and it has a single seed inside it and you can cook and eat the seed and then the peeled fruit can be eaten raw or cooked and eaten so like there's no waste other than like mm. this 
spiky fleshy the speckies <laughs> spiky spines on the outside oh, okay um but that shows up in the mystery baskets sometimes and they're like i don't know what this is or what to do with it i love it when they um they take the fruit out or whatever and they always have to taste it real yeah. quick and they always take a huge bite out of it because you know they don't know if they have to peel it or you know if it's poisonous <laughs> on the outside or whatever and they always take a big bite and they chew it a little bit and then they spit it all yeah. out and they're like i don't know what to do with this and then they just start <laughs> running save it for the end <laughs> yeah. i'll just put it i'll use it as a garnish yeah which is always a mistake as soon as someone says that that's the death knell uh we're coming to the buddha's hand which is also known as the fingered citron um it's an unusually shaped citron variety whose fruit is segmented into finger-like sections and it resembles a human hand gross um most varieties of buddha's hand fruit contain no pulp or juice it's like basically a rind like a weird full rind just a whole rind yeah so um the flavor is supposed to be similar to other citrus fruits and it's supposed to be great in like vinaigrettes and marinades Um, it can also be eaten as a zest or flavoring in desserts savory dishes or alcoholic beverages oh okay or candied as a sweet i'm i know that they i've seen them at wegmans before and i was just like what am i gonna i'm not gonna what am i doing with this <laughs> putting it on my counter and going look at that <laughs> look at that i'll wait six days the fruit flies will come and get it and, and then, then i throw know, it away yeah so yeah. i'm Paid gonna save myself the six do- yeah <laughs> um then another plant that uh mm. has showed up on chopped is a stinging nettle so okay. these are plants that like when you are hiking through the woods mm-hmm. and like you touch it it like immediately like yeah. pricks your skin mm-hmm. like it hurts and then it just feels like you have like it, you like burn it yeah burns. exactly yeah. yes um so you're supposed to use gloves when handling sure. stinging nettles. sure um and to eat them which people do <laughs> you <laughs> blanch the leaves in simmering water and it helps to remove the stinging chemicals from the plant so that makes it safe to eat and handle uh the food network also recommends pureeing it uh in a pesto with other fresh herbs and nuts since it has a similar flavor to spinach so it's, i mean then just get some spinach <laughs> you know i mean if it's similar enough to spinach can't you just use there's spinach? A, lot of, a lot of work involved yeah um in the in the uk there's an annual world nettle eating championship stop which it. draws thousands of people to dorset where competitors attempt to eat as much of the raw plant <gasps> as possible that so sounds dangerous that sounds like someone could have like a really uh-huh. bad reaction and their throat would close up or something it sure sounds like it doesn't, yeah, doesn't it, it? <laughs> so the competitors there they're given about two foot long stalks of the plant mm. from which they strip the leaves and eat them and oh whoever God. strips and eats the most stinging nettle leaves in a fixed time is the winner okay it- what do they win? It better be a lot of money <laughs> to make it worth their while. That's ridiculous. So the competition dates back to 1986 when two neighboring farmers attempted to settle a dispute about which had the worst infestation of nettles. Oh my gosh. When one of the farmers promised to eat any nettle, which was longer than his. <laughs> this just proves that men will have a pissing contest over anything. Absolutely. Yes. And you know what? This is why they're no longer a world power. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say that right now. <laughs> Everyone busy, in this room is my. <laughs> too busy eating. Too busy eating nettles. Like stinging and plants. Killing themselves. Yep. Uh, another kind of sp- spiky spiny plant mm-hmm. that shows up is a cardoon. 
Oh. It is also called the artichoke thistle. So it's a thistle-like plant that's part of the sunflower family. So the flower buds can be eaten um, kind of like tiny, spiny artichokes. Um, the stems are actually eaten after being braised in a cooking liquid. And cardoon stems are part of Lyonnais cuisine in France. Ooh. So only the innermost white stalks are considered edible. And cardoons are therefore usually prepared for sale by protecting the leaf stalks from sunlight for several weeks. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and Traditionally, this was done by burying the plant underground, like you harvest it and then like you bury it back underground. Uh, But in modern cultivation, the plant is usually wrapped in black plastic film or like another opaque material. So cardoon leaf stalks look like giant celery stalks. Um, Food Network uh, suggests that they be served steamed or braised and they have an artichoke-like flavor with a hint of bitterness. So it's just one of those things that if it showed up in your basket, you would have no idea what it was or like how how to eat it and it usually i've noticed a lot of the a lot of the vegetables mm-hmm. i should say like the stinging nettle and that that show up in those baskets tend to have a lot of like preparation involved oh, yeah. that unless you are super familiar with that thing you would have absolutely no idea right. so you know you got to blanch this and peel yeah. that and discard this yeah <laughs> and like this is only edible this tastes <laughs> awful you can't chew this this is actually poisonous <laughs> you know it seems a recipe for disaster Basically. No pun intended. Basically. So, uh, yeah, the cardoons, they have a, a hint of bitterness. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, speaking of bitterness, we oh got boy. the bitter melon. So the bitter melon kind of looks like a small bumpy cucumber. Um, It's a fruit. It has a distinct warty exterior and an oblong shape. Um, It's hollow when you cut it in half, like when you cross section it's hollow and it has a thin layer of flesh surrounding a central seed cavity that has like large seeds and pith. It's mostly eaten green or as it's beginning to turn yellow. And at this stage, the fruit's flesh is crunchy and watery in texture. So it starts out bitter and actually gets even more bitter as it ripens. So like, you can ruin your dish by putting this in it if it's not at the you know the correct amount that you yeah. want it to be um and the food network recommends blanching it to tone it down the bitterness and mm. add it to a stir fry with fresh vegetables Ooh, you know what uh, unpopular opinion i have been really getting into bitter flavors mm. lately you know like i like a grapefruit i like yeah. a tonic you know i like I like the bitterness. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I was listening to an NPR story where this woman wrote um, a cookbook just on bitter flavors. Mm. And she had a recipe for something called burnt toast soup, which is exactly <laughs> what it sounds like. You just burn some toast and make it into a soup. Huh? Yeah. Do you, do you want to eat that? No, I no, no. I mean, I don't want like burnt bitter. Like I want, you know, I want like natural bitterness, yeah. like fruity bitterness. Yeah. Get a light, nice little balance. Yeah. A balance. Anything. Exactly. Oh, I don't boy. know. To each their own, I guess. Okay. Uh, the last of our produce that mm. we're talking about tonight. Um, wheat lacoche, also known as corn smut. <gasps> oh, I've heard of this. Okay. So corn smut. Uh, it's a fungus that forms galls on all above ground parts of corn. Mm. It's known in Mexico as wheat lacoche, and it's a delicacy. So it's often eaten as a filling in like quesadillas and other tortilla-based foods and soups. Mm. So the fungus infects all parts of the host plant by invading the plant ovaries. And then the infection in the plant causes the corn kernels to like swell up into like tumors. Oh um, and then the tissues texture and develop developmental pattern of those tumors is mushroom like. So the galls are gathered like two to three weeks after an ear of corn is infected. So they still retain moisture. And then when they're cooked, they have a flavor that's described as mushroom like sweet, savory, woody and earthy. Who was the first person who was like, like, look at this disgusting uh, growth. I'm going to put it in my mouth. 
Uh, speaking of disgusting gross, Ooh, good. Uh, we're moving along to some of the proteins that you might find Ooh. in the chopped kitchen. Uh, first up, haggis. Oh, my God. So, uh, you know, for those of everybody who doesn't know, uh, haggis is a savory pudding containing sheep's pluck, which is the term for heart, liver, and lungs. Uh, it's minced with onion, oatmeal, suet, spices, and salt, and like stock, and traditionally encased in the in the animal's stomach, though often now it's usually like an artificial case. Oh, you know. oh good. Yeah. Um, it can be boiled, baked, or deep fried. And <laughs> haggis is usually served with neeps and tatties. <laughs> Oh, no, please that's, tell me what neeps and tatties. turnips and potatoes. Oh, okay. But that's I would cute. rather call them neeps and tatties. But from here on out, we're yeah. calling them neeps and tatties. Thanksgiving. Yeah. Neeps and tatties. I'll bring the neeps and tatties. Okay, great. Uh, so those can be boiled or mashed. Um, and then tr- also a dram, which is a glass of Scottish whiskey. And this is especially as the main course of a burn supper. So burn supper is a celebration of the life and poetry of the grand Scott poet Robert Burns. Mm. Um, the suppers are normally held on or near the poet's birthday, which is January 25th, which is also known as Robert Burns Day or Robbie Burns Day or Rob Burns Day. Like they have wow. all kinds of derivatives. The Scots, what they call man. It. Um, Uh, But it's most commonly known as Burns Night. So in 1971, it became illegal to import haggis into the U.S. from the U.K. due Mm. to a ban on food containing sheep lung, which is about 10 to 15 percent of the traditional haggis recipe. So the ban encompasses all lungs as fluids such as stomach acid and phlegm may enter the lung during slaughter. Mm. Uh, The situation was further complicated in 1989 when all U.K. beef and lamb was was banned from importation to the U.S. due to a bovine spongiform encephalophilus. Oh, good job. Um, also known as mad cow disease. Yes. So in 2010, a spokeswoman for the U.S. Department of Agriculture stated that they were re- reviewing the ban on beef and lamb products from the U.K., but that the ban on food containing sheep lung would remain in force. <laughs> so <laughs> since, since haggis cannot be exported to the United States, it there are companies that make it here. Um, and there's one company that says that they use the same 150-year-old recipe and ingredients as in Scotland, except that sheep lung is not used and the oh. casing is artificial. Uh, haggis is also used in a sport called haggis hurling. Oh my gosh. Which involves course. throwing a haggis <laughs> as far as you possibly can. <laughs> and the, the world record for haggis hurling was achieved by Lauren Coltart in 2011 who hurled his haggis 217 feet. Wow. That's a far haggis hurl. Right? Yeah. Good for yeah, ha- World is- record. Good job. This Good is on you. This is a gentleman. I'm a assuming. gentleman in in Scotland and scholar yeah. and yeah. A, and with an <laughs> arm like a cannon. I mean, let's be honest. And you know what? A way to get around it, just FYI, mm. for those of us in the north, go to Canada, get yourself some authentic haggis because oh, there's true. a lot of expat yeah. Scots up there. So they'll serve you a haggis, but they won't let you eat your uh, hamburger well. Your I, hamburger medium well. Right. That's I. <laughs> I got a bone to pick with Canada on that, but you know, <laughs> well, I'll put it on my list. Uh, next up, we got gooey duck. Oh, this yes. is one of my least favorite things that ever oh, shows up on chat. It's visually horrifying. Mm-hmm. So gooey duck is spelled G E O D U C K. looks like geo duck, but it's pronounced gooey duck. Um, it's a sand burrowing saltwater clam known for its long neck, also called a siphon. Uh, the siphon has a savory slightly slightly salty flavor and is considered a delicacy in China, Korea, and Japan. So this is a very 
obscene looking mollusk. It looks like a dick. Let's be honest. It does. <laughs> uh, gooey duck is regarded by some as an aphrodisiac because of its phallic oh, shape. Oh, come on. So it's an ordinary looking clamshell about six to eight inches long with a protuberance called a siphon coming out of one side that can be up to three feet in length. Oh. Uh, oh. It's kind of like if you had a really, really long kielbasa and like <laughs> stuck it in a clamshell. Um, so the gooey duck is the largest burrowing clam in the world. It is also one of the longest living animals of any type with a lifespan wow. of up to 140 years. Get out of here. And the oldest has been recorded as 168 years old. Stop it. So wait, do they eat those? And how do they know? I don't know how they okay, know. I don't right. know how they, how you age a, how do you, a, yeah, how do you carbon you cut date? It and you see, count the rings. You count the rings, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, a female gooey duck produces about 5 billion eggs oh in her century long lifespan. And I know this isn't like the weird animals episode, but I but no, just please. wanted to share those no, numbers. No, it's very good. Um, and the large meaty siphon is prized <laughs> for its, I know, the wor- just <laughs> oh, meaty, if you're, if you're not talking about like, <laughs> I don't know. Unless you're talking to me about like a nice ribeye. Yeah. I don't want to hear the word meaty. um, Well, the large meaty siphon is prized for its savory flavor and crunchy texture. Oh, I was not expecting crunchy. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a big um, like crop in the northwestern Mm. part of the United States, like around Washington State and and all that. And they're mostly entirely exported to asia like <laughs> americans are not prepared we like, no thanks for gooey duck yeah yeah uh another thing that they eat in asia is <laughs> called a century egg <gasps> so this is a chinese preserved food product and delicacy made by preserving duck chicken or quail eggs in a mixture of clay ash salt quick lime and rice hulls for several weeks to several months so through this process, the yolk becomes a dark green to gray color with a creamy consistency and strong flavor due to the hydrogen sulfide and ammonia <gasps> present in it, while the egg white becomes a dark brown translucent <laughs> jelly with a salty flavor. Uh, the transforming agent in the century egg is an alkaline salt, which gradually raises the pH of the egg during the curing process. And this chemical process breaks down some of the complex flavorless proteins and fats in an egg and produces a variety of smaller flavorful compounds <laughs> and century eggs can be eaten without fr- any further preparation like on their own or as a side dish just, but like, crack when it you open. look at this thing you're like why yeah. would, would any again who thought oh i left this egg outside <laughs> in the, in the ash pile yeah exactly let's see if let's it's still eat good. it yeah i mean it's so interesting that there are so many flavors that and like dishes and things from different parts of the mm-hmm. world, not just in Asia. I mean, I feel like Asia gets the bad rap in the West because we are, it is the most unfamiliar to us. I would, I would make the argument. Sure. Um, but it is so funny that our, like our cultural tastes that are so different mm-hmm. that, I mean, and they, I mean, in Asia, they think cheese is the most Awful. disgusting mm-hmm. thing. And frankly, if you break it down, <laughs> Like, oh, we let our milk go bad until it's solid and then we eat it. Like we literally Mm -hmm. eat like the moldiness of milk. And so, I mean, it's just so interesting that we look at their century egg and we're like, why would you ever put that in your mouth? And they look at macaroni and cheese and they're like, oh my God, I can't even look. (laughs) You you white people are disgusting. So it's just a... Right. Nice thought experiment. Right. I just do not want to have to make a dessert out of this thing. Oh, you know? no, no. That'd be terrible. No. 
Um, we're moving back to the UK and some kippers. Mm. So cold smoke kippers are herring that have been split open, salted, and smoked at a low temperature. And the flavor is slightly fishy, but the predominant <laughs> flavor is smoke. Oh, so good. they're fine to eat as is, and cold smoke kippers are essentially raw, so most folks like pan fry them to heat the fish through and like give it a yeah, nice crispy them. texture. Um, so one traditional way of cooking kippers is called jugging them. Ugh. Jugging. Um, so kippers with the heads and tails removed are placed in a upright in a jug, and then oh, boiling geez. water is poured over to cook them. What? And I saw this on an episode of Escape to the Country. And I was nice. intrigued. Um, and a kipper is also sometimes referred to as a red herring, though particularly strong curing is required to produce uh, like a truly red kipper. Uh, I see. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, huh. Sticking with fish here. We're going to up to Scandinavia. Oh, boy. To get some lutefisk mm-hmm. mm. yes. so lutefisk is made from aged stockfish and dried or salted whitefish which is also called clipfisk and lye which is called loot so this is gelatinous in texture and its <laughs> name literally means lye fish <laughs> so the first step is soaking the stockfish in cold water for five to six days and they change the water daily Okay. That's a lot of work. Then the saturated stockfish is soaked in an unchanged solution of cold water and lye for an additional two days. So we're like, we're like eight days into this process. Uh, The fish swells during the soaking and its protein content decreases. (laughs) So it produces a jelly like consistency. So when this treatment is finished, the fish, which is again, saturated with lye is caustic. It has a pH of 11 to 12. And like the pH scale goes from like zero to 14. Yeah. So like, This food that's a 12 on the pH scale. (laughs) They're like, oh, okay. Well, we have to make this edible now. Yeah. So they do another four to six days of soaking this in cold water, which they also change daily. Eventually, the lutefisk is ready to be cooked. So they're... Is that even cooked yet? You can't even eat it yet? No, you can't can't (laughs) eat it yet. Uh, You've been soaking it and like... And and turning it into basically jelly. In the same stuff that murderers use to try and get rid of to bodies. To dissolve bodies, yeah, definitely. Just, just want to put that out there. So uh, it's important that you don't marinate the fish too long in the lye because saponification of the fish fats may occur. This is like, you know, oh, oh you got to do it right. Um, so after it's finally prepared, you're like 14 or 15 days into this you're process. You're like, oh man, I cannot wait to eat this. The loot fisk is saturated with water again and must therefore be cooked extremely carefully so that it doesn't fall to pieces. Yeah. When cooking and eating loot fisk, it is important to clean the loot fisk and its residue off pans, utensils, and plates immediately because loot fisk left overnight becomes nearly impossible to remove. What? <laughs> so none of this, what? like, you're having a big, wild, crazy party and yeah. you serve loot fisk and, and you like, leave it whatever. out and you'll get it in the morning. No. Sterling silver should also never be used in the cooking, serving, oh or eating of loot fisk because it will permanently ruin silver. So stainless steel utensils are And you're putting instead. this inside and of your body. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's amazing it doesn't burn you straight through, through and through from esophagus down <sighs> to colon. Well, I, I can't imagine that it even tastes good at that point. Yeah. I mean, it's just gelatin. I mean, what does the lye provide any flavor? I mean, clearly it turns it into like, I, I mean... <sighs> If any of our listeners out there have eaten loot fisk and you feel like letting us know how please. terrible the experience was, yes, please, please tweet, tweet at us. us. <laughs> um, another thing that you don't think people should eat in Scandinavia is hakarl. <laughs> That's I'm sorry. Bless you. What? Yeah. <laughs> 
Hakardl. Hakardl. So that is the national dish of Iceland, consisting of a shark, which has been cured with a particular fermentation process and hung to dry for four to five months. No. I'm going to tell you how they make Hakardl. Please, please tell me so, about Hakardl. Hakardl contains a large amount of ammonia and has a strong smell what? similar to many cleaning products. Those new to it may gag involuntarily on the first attempt to eat oh it because of God. the high ammonia content. And first timers are sometimes advised to pinch their nose while taking a first bite since the smell is much stronger than what? the taste. So the traditional method of preparation is, okay, step one, gut and behead <laughs> Greenland or sleeper shark. Okay. Okay. Done. I've Step two, place it in a shallow hole dug in gravelly sand with a now clean cavity resting on a small mound of sand. Okay. The shark is then covered with sand and gravel and stones are placed on top of the sand in order to press the shark. In this way, the fluids are pressed out of the body. Ugh. The shark ferments for six to 12 weeks, depending on the season. Following this curing period, the shark is then cut into strips and hung to dry for several months. During the drying period, a brown crust will develop, oh. which is removed prior to cutting the shark into small pieces and serving. Well, thank God. So Andrew Ziburn, who's um, a TV guy who's known for being a rather adventurous eater. And a, and a very bright dresser. He wears a lot oh, yeah, of bright yeah, yeah. orange and reds. Mm-hmm. Uh, he described the smell as reminding him of... Quote, some of the most horrific things I've ever breathed in my life, but said it tasted much better than it smelled. Ugh, that's not, that's not, a, that's not a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> like if you can, if you dare to finally put this in your mouth, mm-hmm. like it's not as bad as, as it smells. It's not as bad I as it know. smells. What? He described the taste as sweet, nutty, and only faint, faintly fishy. Whereas Anthony Bourdain said, Hakardal is the single worst, most disgusting, and terrible tasting thing he has ever eaten. Now, this is coming from a man, Anthony Bourdain. Mm-hmm. I have, I have you thoughts have some about him, about but him? we'll set those yeah. aside for now. He loves Dorian. Oh, yeah. yeah okay. Andrew Zimmern hates Durian because okay. he hates onions. That's yeah, like his okay. one food that he really hates. But this is coming from a man who thinks that durian is great okay so yeah i mean put that into context Mm -hmm. he loves durian (laughs) one of the most disgusting fruits and yet hakardal is his single worst thing uh when gordon ramsay ate it he threw up like yeah (laughs) has one wood (laughs) so our our friend uh a friend of ours went to iceland (laughs) Yes, a couple months ago, <laughs> but I don't think that he that he tried any. Oh, we should ask while him. He was there. So, <laughs> um, another fishy thing, uh, botarga. It's the Italian name for a delicacy of salted cured fish roe, typically of the gray mullet or the bluefin tuna. Mm. So, botarga, and I'm probably saying it wrong. Sorry, Jessica. Uh, it's made <laughs> chiefly from the roe pouch. It is massaged by hand to eliminate air pockets, Gross. then cured and dried in sea salt for a few weeks. So, the result is a hard slab that Ugh. they then sometimes coat in beeswax for preparation purposes, and then they like shave it onto food. Like oh. they'll like grate this hardened wax covered fish egg block <laughs> and they'll like grate it into food. See, when you first started describing it, I imagined like caviar, mm-hmm. but it's more like like salt block caviar. Yeah, it's more like like a like a hard Parmesan cheese yes. is kind of how I'm picturing. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a different color than that. I mean, I but. imagine it would be I don't know, of all of the things that you've described <laughs> so far that are disgusting. <laughs> 
this uncommon. is something we're not we're not placing judgment on everybody oh no here. no, no i'm sorry uncommon uncommon foods. foods for westerners but this i can see like sure over maybe a a plate of mm-hmm. pasta a little bit on the top to give it some yeah. like salty brininess i'd be but down if you've for never that. heard of it yeah then like, you had to Ooh. figure out how to incorporate this into oh, your yeah, appetizer that's true. it's like yeah what I cut what off a whole this? slab yeah. and fry it up. There you go. It's mm. <laughs> like polenta. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are you feeling adventurous? Always, Julia. Always. So we got fugu. Fugu. Is that F-U-G-U? F-U-G-U. Okay. It's the Japanese word for puffer fish. Oh, no. Oh, right. So fugu can be lethally poisonous due to its tetrodotoxin. Ooh. Therefore, it must care- be carefully prepared to remove the toxic parts and avoid contaminating the meat. So the restaurant preparation of fugu is strictly controlled by law in Japan and several other countries, and only chefs who have qualified after three or more years of rigorous training are allowed to prepare the fish. Man, Domestic preparation occasionally leads to accidental death. So fugu contains Jeez. lethal amounts of the poison tetrodotoxin, in its inner organs, especially the liver, ovaries, eyes, and skin. Huh. So this poison paralyzes the muscles while the victim stays <gasps> fully conscious. Oh my God. And the effects are somewhat similar to those of the nerve agent sarin. Oh my God. Um, and the poison victim is unable to breathe and <gasps> eventually dies from asphyxiation. While being like perfectly aware the entire time. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because God. there is no known antidote for fugu poison. Then why? Okay. You know me as an overly cautious person. <laughs> no space, no sea. We've talked about this. <laughs> this, this fish. If I'm gonna, if I'm gonna risk my life doing mm-hmm. it, it better open up my mind. Mm-hmm. It better be like ayahuasca. You know what I mean? It must. It, it should be the most delicious thing I've ever put in my mouth. And even then, I'd be like, no. You know what? <laughs> I don't need to see God. Yeah, I don't. Well, apparently the um, the diner experiences mild like effects of mild intoxication, including waves of euphoria. Okay, and so I'm not wrong. Sensations. <laughs> You're right. Um, so the role of the fugu chef is actually not to eliminate the toxin altogether, but to reduce it so that you feel oh, these things man. while you eat it. Um, fugu is the only food the emperor of Japan is forbidden to eat for his own safety. Yeah, understandable. Yeah. Um, and speaking of royalty, we have the tavukasu. It's a Turkish dessert made with chicken meat. (laughs) (laughs) Those are incongruous things you just said. Uh, It became one of the most famous delicacies served to the Ottoman sultans in the Topkapi Palace. And it is today considered a signature dish of Turkey. Mm. So the traditional version uses white chicken breast meat softened by boiling and separating it into very fine fibers. But modern modern recipes often pound the meat into a fine powder. Mm, what? powdered chicken mm. <laughs> the meat is mixed with milk sugar cracked rice or other thickeners and often some sort of flavoring like cinnamon and the result is a thick pudding often shaped for presentation so it's like um it's like, it's uh, like rice pudding but chicken yeah yeah it's like a chicken panna cotta you know what i wouldn't be against pu- eating that i wouldn't i'd probably take a spoonful or two yeah see if there's any like chickeny flavors <sighs> i think it I mean, you're just like thinking about the composition of it. I though. guess it's, so. But if I didn't know what it was. Yeah, if you didn't know what it was. They were mm-hmm. like, this is the traditional Turkish dessert. Mm-hmm. And it looked like a rice pudding. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, okay. Yeah. Lay it on me. Like, mm, this is poultry. Stringy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, then I just want to talk about a few more miscellaneous items that Ooh, show please. up in the, in the chopped baskets. So um, gochujang. 
That is a red chili paste that's savory, sweet, and spicy. Mm-hmm. It's a fermented condiment made from red chili powder, glutinous rice, fermented soybean powder, mar- barley malt powder, and salt. Mm-hmm. So traditionally, it was fermented over years in earthenware on an elevated stone platform called a jangdokdai in the backyard. In you know, in your Korean backyard. Yeah, sure. So gochujang is used in Korean dishes like bibimbap and also in salads, stews, soups, and marinated meat dishes. And gochujang makes dishes spicier because of the capsaicins and the chili, mm. but also it gives it somewhat, you know, somewhat sweet kick to it too. That sounds so delicious. It's kind of like an alternative to sriracha. Okay. But I guess you have to figure out uh, what level of yeah. you're gochujang not you're planning to add to, to your dish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have Vegemite. Or as they might say on the show, vegetable yeast spread, because we all know how they love to, yeah. they can't talk about can't, brands, so they come up with these like descriptors that you're like, yeah, um, yeah corn puffs, yeah, Ch- chocolate sandwich cookies, yeah, please. Like, we know what that is, Ted. Um, so Vegemite is a cult favorite condiment enjoyed by Brits and Aussies. It's made primarily from leftover brewer's yeast extract. Um, Food Network suggests adding a small amount to a sauce to add thickness and depth of flavor, or you can like mix it with mayonnaise and spread it on a sandwich. I don't know. I, I've never tried it and I just, I know it's one of those things that you just hear people make fun of that yeah. if you're not if you didn't grow up eating it you don't yeah, want to yeah eat exactly it. i gave it as a like a, a crank gift for like an office <laughs> christmas party thing and we opened it up and merely smelled it no mm-hmm. one had the balls mm-hmm. to actually like take a spoonful me included i mean yeah. i'm not i'm not throwing shade at anybody here <laughs> um but it did smell like like um yeast like old it was, beer yeah like old beer yeah and i was like no there's no way i'm eating this mm. i wonder gross. how the, it got the name vegemite i don't know that, that makes you think it's like a, a a healthy vegetable drink yeah like mm, a vegemite smoothie and we're gonna go to <laughs> yoga you know we'll do another we'll do another topic on, we'll yeah. do another episode on that interesting the history of vegemite <laughs> um Jaggery has showed up mm. on Chopped, J-A-G-G-E-R-Y. It's a concentrated product of dates, cane juice, and palm sap. So um, it varies from golden brown to dark brown in color, and it's made up of sucrose, invert sugars, moisture, and insoluble matter like wood ash, proteins, <laughs> and fibers of plants. So it's also, it's um, to eat it, it's like a... It's just like a very concentrated sugar. Okay. And you kind of have to like shave it off or hack it off and um, mix it with other ingredients like peanuts, condensed milk, coconut, and even white sugar okay. um, so that you can actually cook with it. But it's oh. a thing that you're like, what the heck is this? Yeah, I've never heard of that word that? before. There's also ver juice, V E R juice. <laughs> it's a. <laughs> You know, <laughs> no, I get it. I saw it in my mind. Uh, it's a highly acidic juice made by pressing unripe grapes, crab apples, or other sour fruit. So um, they sometimes add lemon or sorrel juice, herbs, or spices to it to change the flavor. So a lot of modern cooks actually use this in salad dressings as the acidic ingredient when wine is going to be served with the salad. So this is because vera juice provides a comparable sour taste component without competing with or altering the taste of wine the Ooh. way like a vinegar or a lemon juice would. Yeah. Um, kind of into that yeah and it's it's one of those things that people drank in you know medieval times like yeah make you take your unripe fruits and you would press it and make this like fair juice and so there are still cultures that will drink this 
plain. Just but straight. Usually people will cook with it. Yeah. Huh. Um, we have a fairly new ingredient. This Ooh. hasn't. This hasn't had a name or been used in a lot of things until what? recent years. It's called aquafaba. I, it sounds vaguely familiar okay. to me. Okay. So this is the thick liquid that results from soaking or cooking legumes like chickpeas in water for an extended period of time. Okay. So like when you open a can of chickpeas and there's like that like viscous goop in that, yeah. that's called aquafaba. Oh. So um, you probably usually like just rinse it down the yeah. drain. But um, especially vegans use this because it has the ability to mimic functional properties of egg whites in cooking. Oh, that's so interesting. So it can be used as like a direct vegan replacement, a direct vegan replacement for egg whites in recipes like egg whites, like in recipes like meringues and marshmallows. Oh, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it's like a thickener and kind of a... Um, right, it's like the for? starch from these chickpeas... Like yeah, mixed with the water magically creates that protein. Mm-hmm. That yeah, that oh, that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. So that's a way that vegans can eat marshmallows. Congratulations, vegans! Yay! And the last food that I wanted to talk about that shows up that has showed up in a chopped basket is called smorgastarta. <laughs> it is a dish of Swedish origin, popular of in course. Sweden, Estonia, Finland, and Iceland. It's a savory cake. It's Ooh. similar to a sandwich, but with what? large amounts of fillings and garnish. It's like a layered cream cake, but with like sandwich ingredients. <laughs> so a smorgastarta is made up of several layers of light or rye bread with um, creamy fillings in between. So the fillings and toppings can vary, but um, egg and mayonnaise are often the base. Ugh. And there's additional filling um, like liver pate, olives, shrimp, ham, cold cuts, caviar, <laughs> tomato, cucumbers, grapes, lemon slices, cheese, wow. and smoked salmon. So smorgastarta is served cold and cut like a dessert cake. And the types of sandwich cakes vary. Um, you know, they can have, you can have meat, fish, cheese, vegan. And the top garnish usually reflects the ingredients used as a filling. So instead of like a party sub, oh. they make a smorgastarta, which is what I'm just envisioning, like those Betty Crocker cookbooks from the 50s. Yes. Where they're just like, throw in some cream cheese and mayonnaise <laughs> and a can <laughs> of smoked salmon and layer it up and mm. top it with pickles. Yeah. Yeah, um, I would not. I would not consider that an ingredient. I would mm. consider that an addition well, see, in of the itself. Thing that that keeps showing up in, in chopped, especially since they're in like season thirty-two. Yeah, of exactly. Chopped they're now, running out of food. Is they put like like already existing ingredients, like like as if they were leftovers. So um, oh. you might get a basket that has like you know f- blue cheese. Dressing and chicken wings is like an ingredient in your chopped basket. Oh, okay. Like one ingredient. Um, there is a widget online that's a chopped um, mystery basket generator. Oh, so cool. So you just like click on it. Um, and when I did that earlier today, like to see what my, what a good example is. The first one I got um, for an entree was baby bananas, dried hibiscus flour, buffalo hanger steak, and football cupcakes. Oh, okay. So... I, I didn't want to, I don't know. I feel like fo- that's so cool. You don't know what a football cupcake is yeah. right now, but um, we'll tweet this link out so you can, yeah, um, that you would can be see great. it and you can generate your own mystery basket. It sounds fun. But uh, yeah, definitely in the, in the more recent episodes, they have like full ingredients and you're like, I'm going to scrape the icing off of this yeah. and you know, I'll crumble up this part of it and toast you know, you're it. still using it like in, in your final dish. But, but you have to break. So I understand. Mm-hmm. So now they have to, 
break things down mm-hmm. as opposed to just assemble them into something. Right. Yeah. So That's you might have your smorgasbord and you might be like, oh, so I scraped out the mayonnaise uh, in the first layer of this and added it to my... I put it in a blender and mm. added some water and yeah. that's the shake that yeah. comes with. Huh. Yeah. No. The deconstruct. Oh yeah. When you breathe the word deconstructed in, oh, yeah. in a top, uh, in a chopped plate, that's the, that's <laughs> not going to work for you. That's buddy. the death knell right there. <laughs> so that's, that's all of the kind of that un- sounds unusual products and foods that I've, I am, I am no longer hungry, <laughs> but I did learn a lot about some, um, different foods that mm-hmm. I had never heard of before. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Julia. That's yes. Very and a lot, we learned a lot of things that we never want to eat. Does not. So, uh, it's time for my quiz. Ooh. The title of my quiz is you have been chopped. <laughs> it's a quiz on celebrity chefs and guillotines. Oh my God. That's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Question one, which sultry cooking show hostess and author of How to Be a Domestic Goddess is also the daughter of a lord? Question two. True or false? The guillotine is named after a person. Question three. Bloody L. Besides swearing at people on about 15 different television series, Gordon Ramsay keeps busy by operating a few dozen restaurants, which currently hold seven stars in total from what annually published guide? Question four. In July 1793, Charlotte Corday was guillotined for killing which radical Jacobin whose death was memorialized in a famous painting by Jacques-Louis David? Question five. Chopped judge and celebrated chef Marcus Samuelson, also the guest chef at President Obama's first White House foreign state dinner, was born in Ethiopia, but raised in what country where he learned to make meatballs and ginger snaps with his adopted grandmother Helga? Question six, which British monarch who believed in the divine right of kings was beheaded in 1649 following his capture during the English Civil War? He was accused of high treason against England by using his power to pursue his personal interest rather than the good of the country and condemned to death by the rump parliament. Question seven, prolific chef and restaurateur Alain Ducasse owns Restaurant Le Jules Verne, located at what landmark? Question 8. In 1996, State Representative Doug Teeper unsuccessfully sponsored a bill to replace his state's method of execution from electric chair to guillotine. In what state, which hosted a notable international event that summer, did he propose this legislation? Question 9. Ina Garten's official brand launched in 1978 when she purchased a specialty food store in West Hampton, New York, which had been named by its original owner in tribute to a 1954 film starring Ava Gardner. Ina Garten kept the name when she took over since it meshed well with her idea of an elegant but earthy lifestyle. What was the name of that food store? And question 10. Put the following events in order. Apple Computer Company formed by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. France executed its last death row inmate via guillotine. Steven Spielberg's blockbuster film Jaws was released. And your bonus question. What raw ingredient should a chopped contestant never serve to judge Scott Conant? I'll give you about a minute to think, and we'll be back with your answers.
All right. Oh my gosh. We're back. I'm so excited because I know a bunch of these. That's great. All right. uh, First question. Which sultry cooking show hostess and author of How to Be a Domestic Goddess is also the daughter of a lord? That would be Nigella Lawson. Uh, Yes. She's so beautiful and her voice is so rich. Yeah, she just seduces you like right oh through the television God. screen. It's it's uh, it's almost. And she knows it. Oh, she knows. She's such a naughty minx. Oh my goodness. Mm. I kind of love her a little bit. Ooh. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's it, like the end of her show would always be like her sneaking down to the kitchen in a silk robe to just have, a have bit one more, more chocolate. Bite. Oh my goodness. So uh, her father is Nigel Lawson, who is a conservative politician and former Chancellor of the Exchequer under Margaret Thatcher in huh. England. So, and he named her after him. I just realized that. Yeah, it sound, kind of sounds like it. Um, second question: True or false? The guillotine is named after a person. That is true. It is true. Um, in 1789, physician Joseph Ignace Guillotin proposed to the French National Assembly that capital punishment should always take the form of decapitation by means of a simple mechanism. So Guillotin, um, he argued that decapitation by a lightning quick machine would be more humane and egalitarian than sword and axe beheadings, <laughs> which were often botched. Um, he later helped oversee the development of the first prototype, which was a machine designed by French doctor Antoine and built by a German harpsichord maker named Tobias Schmidt. Guillotin tried to distance himself um, from the machine during the guillotine hysteria of the 1790s, and his family later unsuccessfully petitioned the French government to change its name in the early 19th oh. century. So, oh, like, poor guy. In the end, he, like, you know, he was he's like, trying no. to make it, like, more humane, kind of, so yeah. that it wasn't, like, a lot of lung, you know, Yeah, but at the end of the out, day, you're still his, killing people. Yeah, his, yeah, and so his name has been... Attached to it ever since. Poor guy. Uh, question three. Besides swearing at people on about 15 different television series, Gordon Ramsay keeps busy by operating a few dozen restaurants, which currently hold seven stars in total from what annually published guide? That would be the Michelin it guide. the Michelin guide. Uh, fun fact, I had an ex-boyfriend who thought it was Michelin <laughs> and that it was not the same Michelin as like the Michelin oh, tires. Yes, it is. He was like, no, mm-hmm. it would never be the tires. No, no, yes. no, no. And then, of course, I Googled it and I was like, in your face. And that relationship did not last. Yeah, you're... <laughs> <laughs> That sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Michelin stars are a rating system used by the Red Michelin Guide to grade restaurants on their quality. So the guide was actually originally developed in 1900 to show French drivers where local amenities such as restaurants and mechanics were. And the rating system was first introduced in 1926. So according to the guide, one star signifies a very good restaurant. Two stars are excellent cooking that is worth a detour. And three <laughs> stars means exceptional cuisine that is worth a special journey. Ooh. So it's actually supposed to be like... Like for traveling. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. Um, question four. Uh, Charlotte Corday was guillotined for killing which radical Jacobin whose death was memorialized in a famous painting by Jacques-Louis David. That would be Marat in the death of Marat. Jean-Paul Marat. So actually, like this guy, real piece of work. Oh, my God. Um, He advocated for basic human rights for the poorest members of society, but he also called for the prisoners of the French Revolution to be killed before they could be freed in what became known as the September Massacres. Mm -hmm. So um, his assassination kind of led to the... to the glorification of his memory by yes. the Jacobins. Um, and he was killed when Charlotte Corday stabbed him in his bathtub, which he was conducting business from due to a debilitating skin condition. Yeah. At Charlotte Corday's trial, she said, I knew that he was perverting France. I have killed one man to save a hundred thousand. And after she was executed, there was a man named Legros who 
um, supposedly lifted her head from the basket and slapped it on the cheek. <gasps> and witnesses report an expression of unequivocal indignation on her face when her cheek was slapped. Yeah, hell yeah. <sighs> Even in death. Yeah. Damn. Uh, question five. Chop judge and celebrated chef Marcus Samuelson was born in Ethiopia but raised in what country where he learned to make meatballs and ginger snaps with his adopted grandmother Helga? I'm pretty sure this is Sweden. It he is Sweden. Sweden. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was looking into his background. Um, Marcus was Marcus Samuelson. He was born in Ethiopia. Um, his birth name was Kesahun Sigi. Um, so he was separated from his family during the Ethiopian civil wars mm-hmm. and he and his sister were adopted by a lovely Swedish couple. Um, so they changed his and her name yeah. um, when they moved to um, Sweden. So he um, had a pretty great career. He mm-hmm. is the youngest chef to receive a three-star review from the New York Times and he's currently head chef at the Red Rooster in Harlem. Yes. And he wears the jauntiest hats. He's, oh, he's so oh, stylish. He's so stylish. And his accent is so beautiful mm-hmm. and he's just a handsome guy. I'm a big fan of Marcus Samuelson. Yeah, big fan. Uh, question six, which British monarch who believed in the divine right of kings was beheaded in 1649 following his capture during the English Civil War? Okay. I think it's Louis the Sixteenth. He was French. Then I am... Oh, wait, no. Are we talking about a British person? I said which British monarch? Oh. Divine right of kings beheaded in 1649 following his capture during the English Civil War. Oh, Charles I. It is Charles okay. I. Charlie I. Yes. I'm sorry. So, I was wrong. Um, he was condemned to death by the Rump Parliament. So the Rump Parliament was urged along by Oliver Cromwell, who went on to serve as the first Lord Protector and ruler of the English Commonwealth from 1653 to 1658. So shortly after Cromwell died, so this is a sidebar, uh, the monarchy was reestablished. And in 1661, the recalled parliament ordered the posthumous execution of the deceased who had participated in Charles I's trial and execution. So this included the body of Oliver Cromwell, which was then dragged on a sledge through (gasps) the streets of London to the gallows where his body, what dead, was hanged in full public view and later taken down. Then Cromwell's head was severed from his body with eight blows placed on a wooden spike on a 20 foot pole oh and God. raised above Westminster Hall where it remained for more than 20 years until <gasps> 1684. Get. So you would just be like walking down the street and in like, London, like going to the market like, oh, and you're like, you know, your cousins are in from out of town and they're like, what the? <laughs> like, oh, it's just Oliver's skull up on that you know what that just goes to show that we are a hair's breadth away from complete barbarism you know what i mean like that is that's a level of posthumous revenge that was unnecessary yeah you don't see that too much these days no the the exhumation and (laughs) subsequent desecration of yeah yeah so the the head was up on a pole for at least 20 years until 1684 and then people kind of like lost track of it and then there've lost been people that like they claimed that you know it's been in their family for sure, 3 yeah. years and da, da 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 but um I think that if the one that they have identified as his was reburied like with his body and Jeez, you know I'm a in like a secret place so that <laughs> yeah some, so this doesn't happen somebody again. doesn't come back to seek revenge on the skull of our all of our trauma um, question seven, uh, prolific French chef and restaurateur Alain Ducasse owns restaurant Le Jules Verne located at what landmark? I don't know. It's the Eiffel Tower. Oh, how at the, interesting. It's the top of the Eiffel Tower. Um, you can have a five course dinner experience there for a mere 190 euros. Um, while you're about 410 feet in the air viewing all of Paris. That's pretty cool. We didn't, we didn't go there. Oh, okay. My mom and I didn't go there. Question eight. In 1996, state representative Doug Teeper 
unsuccessfully sponsored a bill to replace his state's method of execution from electric chair to guillotine. In what state, which hosted a notable international event that summer, did he propose this legislation? Um, I, I don't know. I had not. I, I feel like I heard a little bit about this, but I have no idea. Um, it was Georgia. So in 1996, Atlanta... Um, had the Olympics, the Summer Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, Doug Teeper, still a state representative there, and he's been elected what? eight times to the Georgia House of Representatives. That's just laziness on the voters' part. <laughs> That's just like, I've heard of Doug Teeper. <laughs> he gets my eh, vote. Yeah. So, um, and he is very active on Twitter. Mm, figures. <laughs> uh, question nine Ina Garten's official brand. Um, what was the name of that food store? The Barefoot Contessa. It was Come the Barefoot on. Contessa. So I didn't realize it was named after the movie. I thought like, oh, I she either. had like, you know, oh, someone had given her a nickname. Yeah. And she just went with it because she's not Italian. She's not a countess. No. She's a, she is a nice, a, pleasant a, Jewish lady from queen. New York. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I love her. Her TV show is like TV Valium. It's, it's yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> And then uh, last question, put the following events in order. Uh, We have Apple Computer Company formed. France executed its last death row inmate via guillotine. And then Steven Spielberg's blockbuster film Jaws released. Okay, I think I got this. Name the order. I'm going to go with Jaws, guillotine, Apple Computers. Okay, here's the order. Okay. June 1975, Jaws was released. Okay. April 1976, Apple was formed. (gasps) In 1977, torture murderer Hamida Janoubi was executed by guillotine on September 10th, 1977 in Marseille, France. Damn. And France abolished the death penalty officially in 1981. So, Damn. 1977, still using the guillotine. Those French are, they hold a grudge. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do not mess around. No. No. And then your bonus question, what raw ingredient should a chop contestant never serve? To judge I, Scott I should know this, but... Raw red onion. Oh, yeah. He will chop the shit out of you right away <laughs> if you serve him raw red onion. You'll get it's like out of here. Mark Murphy also does not like truffle oil. Like, those are the ingredients that you like. If you've watched this, if you watch yeah. 100 episodes of this and then you go on the show, just like don't put those ingredients in your yeah. foods. Well, Scott Conant, granted, I have my issues with his wolfiness and his like evil grin and his permanent stubble i hate that just that's true he does have permanent stubble just just pick a side and stick with it but anyway (laughs) i do agree with him because red onion is such a pungent and it just blows out your palate and then you're you're tasting it like eight hours later god it's the worst and you can't remember what you ate yeah in our house we call that the forbidden onion yes it's forbidden why is it still a thing (laughs) anyway so that that was my quiz that was that was great. That was a lot of uncommon foods, and I uh, hope you learned a little bit about the guillotine <laughs> and uh, you know some of our favorite celebrity chefs. Um, so you know how to reach us at this point, I guess. Yeah. Well, we should say you're it again. listening to us. Yeah. Right. I mean, you found us. We're on iTunes, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, and whatever podcast app you like. You guys apparently really like Pocket Casts. So. Oh, is that a thing? That's a thing. Oh, I've never heard of it. Oh. I know I'm so like I'm behind on a lot of things. No, sorry. Um, you can also tweet at us at misinfopod. Mm-hmm. You can email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. And you can visit us at our website, misinfopod.com. Do, do, do. All right. So, um, well, thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye. Bye.